Welcome to the podcast edition of Dream Talk Radio. I'm your host, Anne Hill, and every week I explore topics related to dreams, sleep, health, culture, and consciousness. Dream Talk Radio airs every Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific Time on KOWS 107.3 FM in Occidental, California. And you can catch the live stream at www.kows.fm. Meanwhile, I hope you enjoy this edition of Dream Talk Radio. With me on the phone, I have a, a great special guest. He is a new, well, actually, I don't know exactly how new, uh, programmer here on Cows. This is uh, Stuart Goodnick, and he uh, is host of The Mystical Positivist, which is airs here on Cows every Saturday from 4 to 6. Uh, Stuart is also a founder of Many Rivers Books in Tea in Sebastopol and has been a practice, uh, practitioner and teacher of Taiyu meditation for many years. So, Stuart, thanks so much for coming on the phone this morning. My pleasure, Anne. I guess you are you are calling from your 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 alter ego, which is actually um, working down in Silicon Valley. So um, I appreciate you taking the time to to be on the air this morning. Certainly. So um, first, let's tell people a little bit about your show. And uh, when when did you start the Mystical Positivist? Our first show started December eighteenth. So and it is. It, it was recent. Yeah, it, it's a, we we just. A, a very recent. We've we've done about ten shows now, mm-hmm. and the idea with the mystical positivist is that it is intended to be dedicated to having in-depth discussions of spiritual topics, mm-hmm. ideally with uh, senior spiritual practitioners or teachers in traditions. It's in many ways a spinoff of the tradition that we do in Many Rivers Books and Tea, mm-hmm. where every Thursday we have guests, either authors practitioners, teachers, uh, artists, sometimes uh, speaking to our uh, audience in Sebastopol. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to do a radio format that captured some of the best of that, but also allowed us to go a little more in-depth than you really have scope to do when you have a public talk with a a lot of different uh, people uh, coming with their own questions. Yes. So who have been some of your guests uh, since December? So we've had... um, uh, Guests like uh, this this last week, we had uh, Denise Berry-sensei, who's an Aikido-sensei mm-hmm. with a uh, practice in Sebastopol. Uh, we've had some friends from our own uh, uh, spiritual circuit or spiritual orbit, uh, uh, a gentleman named Hal Blacker, who's a Dharma teacher uh, and founder of an organization called Real Dharma in mm-hmm. Fairfax, California. He's in the t- Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Yeah. And we've had a, uh, a couple of folks from... Uh, E.J. Gold's community. E.J. Gold's this kind of wild, uh, unconventional teacher up in the Grass Valley area. Mm-hmm. He was my own teacher's teacher, and so the members of his community, some of his senior practitioners, very interesting artists, writers, who have a uh, perspective and kind of a bent on spiritual practice that yeah. is very familial to our own. Okay, so I understand why you call it, why you have the word mystical, but what about the positivist part? That's, that's the, that was kind of an interesting moniker for a show, the mystical positivist. So maybe you can just sort of explain your whole, your take on mysticism in, in general. Sure. So this, this phrase actually 
goes way back for me too when I was in graduate school. I, I have a, 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 a kind of a strong technical educational background, sure. an undergraduate degree in uh, uh, physics, and I did a couple years of graduate work before I went off to do other things. But with some of my friends in uh, graduate school who had, knew my uh, penchant for interest in philosophical questions and spiritual questions, we kind of came up with this idea of mystical positivism. Mm-hmm. One of my friends was very into philosophy and had this big library of, of, of philosophical books, uh, like the uh, Will and Ariel Durant History of Philosophy. Mm-hmm. And the so the, the term is a play on a term that's very popular in scientific circles, which is called logical positivism. Uh. Logical positivism is really that very materialistic viewpoint that states that the ground of all reality is the physical realm, mm-hmm. and that the way to approach any sort of inquiry is through a scientific methodology. So basically I have to do experiments, I can mm-hmm. falsify the results that I have, and et cetera, et cetera. It's, mm-hmm. it's the kind of scientific, the hardcore uh, scientific worldview. Yeah. That's logical positivism. So positivism in itself, sort of separate from logical positivism, is all about applying a kind of a rational, scientific-based, methodology to any line of inquiry. Mm -hmm. So to me, mystical positivism takes the best of what in my own life was uh, the rigor of a scientific education and applies it to questions of mysticism. And Mm -hmm. the way that I look at this, the way I kind of think about this uh, issue is, whereas with a logical positivist perspective, people sort of look outside of themselves and assume that the only thing that they can say is real are sort of the facts of the phenomenal realm. With mystical positivism, it takes the position that really anything, the only thing we can really know, the only thing that we we can say anything definite about at all is mm-hmm. the fact of our awareness. Mm-hmm. That is, I, I have a sense of awareness. I, I can start to words out about what that means, but that fact is the kind of the fundamental fact that I have. So mystical positivism starts with that being the primary real thing. Anything else, even the material realm, is somewhat inferential because anything we know about the material realm is being mediated through this very complex Mm -hmm. sensory apparatus of the human organism. But then it, it's, it seems like a paradox to me because the positivist streak would be I have to verify this in some way. I have to be you know rational and take a look at this. But really when you get into the realm of awareness, how much – I mean uh, there's not a whole lot of objective reality there. I mean it seems to me that even our awareness, as crystal clear as it is in some moments, is always still subjective and subject to our our you know later going back and seeing wow I was really I was really under an illusion at that moment but in the moment it looks it looks crystal clear so how do you account for the for the rationality in there? Well, I think I think the for me the rationality in part is partly defining or. Uh, putting some boundaries around what I can reasonably say with yeah. full confidence. Uh-huh. And, that's, and that's a key point, right. because for me, the uh, mystical positivist core that I just expressed, which is the fact of my awareness, is indisputable. I can't, you know, it, it is completely illogical to me to even 
consider, oh, what if I'm not conscious? Because yeah. because there's this fact of my being, and I, I can know nothing else except that fact. Mm-hmm. Absolutely nothing else. So so that's a starting point of something I can say definitely. But the conclusions I draw based off of uh, conceptual constructs or uh uh, experiential flows, whether it's in dream states or you know through my emotional center mm-hmm. and things like that, I have to treat very cautiously. And in one sense, mystical positivism is an assertion that you have to be careful about what you say definitely. Yeah. And the, re- the reason I say this is that I think one of the critiques of modern you know spiritual uh, uh, pursuits and particularly this comes up more in uh, 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 what things that go towards the new age side of the spectrum is that people become very willing to make truth claims uh, about things that they really can't verify yeah and it's not that I have a problem with uh, uh, people expressing their experiences, it's the conclusions they draw from that. And the danger there is that once you begin to draw conclusions and assert truth claims, one's sensitivity and openness becomes attenuated. And that Mm -hmm. can be a problem for deeper inquiry. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but once you decide that you've had the answer, you're not, you don't tend to go looking for evidence that might contradict your, your conclusion. (laughs) Exactly. And, (laughs) and it's, I mean, it's a funny topic because I find that people, whether it's in spiritual pursuits or uh, you see this often in uh, religion and you know fundamentalist religion, uh, will make certain kinds of claims about the world which mm. are um, not necessarily verifiable. In some cases, they're flat out falsifiable, mm-hmm. but uh, they're 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 claims that. Um, uh, people become very comfortable with, and it's almost like those claims become a uh, uh, litmus test of Mm -hmm. the people who are in their group or the people who are out of their group. And it's almost as though those those questions and those claims that people make are in areas that they don't, you know, they adopt these claims more more uh, because there's no consequences for them for not adopting them. Mm -hmm. So so a fundamentalist who... uh, you know, believes that the Earth is uh, six thousand years old, for instance, right. will not really have negative consequences of that in their ordinary uh, day-to-day life. You know, uh, they're not going to. Um, you know, that's not going to cause them a problem. You know, making a left turn on the right. freeway or something like that. Uh, if they were elevated to a position of having to decide um, allocation of funding for scientific research, it might start to be a problem. But for most people, they can adopt these kinds of claims without any real negative consequences. Mm-hmm. And that leads to a kind of uh, spiritual and philosophical laziness that, mm-hmm. uh, again, gets gets in the way of uh, deep inquiry if that's what one wants to do. I'm not, right. I'm not claiming that everyone has to do that. I, I, right. I, would, I would say that uh, for the people who are interested in serious spiritual work, this is a problem. For people who aren't, then it's, it's you know, they can continue their lives with yeah. their uh, illusions of choice, and it's, you know, kind of uh, boils down to about as being as momentous as what team they favor in the Super Bowl. <laughs> well, that's just it. You know, my litmus test for people who uh, feel that they have some answer or some truth that they are, you know, peddling and sharing far and wide is is how much emotional investment they have in it. 
you know, the, I, I, it seems to me that once you step off the train of uh, verifiable or at least non-falsifiable truth, the, the, and you still want to be right, the more emotional energy you put into making people, in, into convincing people. So right. the people who are really invested in convincing me that what they are saying is true, you know, just by default, I, 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 I discount them before actually accepting anything that they say. It's taken me 25 years to figure this out. But, you know, it, it's just, it comes down for me a lot of times to how much, how much emotional energy are, is this person putting into assuring me that they have the one right and true answer here. And, that, and that's the uh, that kind of issue is again what you know mystical positivism is trying to shed a light on. Right. I'll, I'll give you sort of a, a, a different uh, slant on that though, which is that in scientific pursuits, uh, although this isn't often articulated, there is a level of what I would call faith in mm-hmm. uh, uh, science in that. Uh, at one level, you have to have some what I would call faith or acceptance of certain kinds of axioms, and then from those axioms, you begin to draw deductive conclusions based off of new facts. Yeah. But there's this whole notion of holding a hypo- uh, an hypothesis, mm-hmm. which is very critical in the scientific uh, uh, progress, because I have to be willing to hold a hypothesis for an extended period of time simply to have the motivation to carry out a, an experiment or yeah. to gather data to make draw conclusions about whatever the subject matter is. And so for me, um, even though the kind of the, the shtick of the mystical positivist is to say that uh, uh, I say that you know rationality is no, in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience, the for me, I... I have no problem holding extended hypotheses about questions that I have mm-hmm. a hard time verifying. Mm-hmm. You know, to give you a, 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 a concrete example, for instance, let's, let's take a subject of reincarnation. Sure. Well, starting from the, 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 the starting point of a mystical positivist, which is my you know, core sense of identity, I really can't say with any certainty, with any integrity in, in my uh, current configuration that I know that there is continuity of my uh, egoic consciousness uh, after the death of the physical organism. Right. I, I don't know that. I can hold a hypothesis and I can sort of gather data uh, in the end, like, so, like for so many of us, the final laboratory test is going to be my own physical death. Mm-hmm. And often much of spiritual practice is about preparing one one's uh, laboratory, if you will, to uh, be present and open and have all, all equipment <laughs> operating properly sure. when that, when that uh, transition takes place so that you can determine for yourself what the answer to these, some of these extended hypotheses are. But, but, you know, I just distinct, you know, I can listen to people talk about um, uh, their experiences. I can, like, for instance, uh, read or hear about the Seth material yeah. that has some very deep and provocative uh, and challenging conceptualizations around the whole notion of reincarnation. And I may even find some of these ideas as, uh, as compelling or interesting, but as a mystical positivist, I have to return to the fact that 
all of these are interesting hypotheses. And then the question is, okay, so what does this mean for me? Right. What, is, what does this really mean practically in the uh, unfolding of my being? Mm-hmm. And so the question a mystical positivist uh, would ask is, does, does this conceptual structure actually uh, uh, reveal or deepen my own penetration of the mystery of my existence, yeah. or is it uh, food for my egoic consciousness and, right. the, pro- and the kind of the propagation of this uh, individuated sense of self mm-hmm. through time and space? Mm-hmm. We are talking with Stuart Goodnick here on Dream Talk Radio this morning. Stuart is host of The Mystical Positivist here on COWS every Saturday from 4 to 6. Uh, he's also one of the founders of Many Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol and a Taiyu meditation practitioner. Uh, you know, I, I think th- this is a real fascinating subject for me because I've been writing a lot about what it... Uh, uh, about that journey, how we how we start as spiritual seekers or mystical, you know, looking for some mystical um, train to catch, for lack of a better metaphor, and and that what you're talking about about holding this hypothesis to me also translates as keeping a, a, some curiosity, uh, having a little bit of the meta picture about what you're doing because. It seems to me, not only from my own experience, but from others' experience, that we go out as searchers and and we're curious and we're looking. We have certain hypotheses, maybe, and we're looking to see whether those can hook up with actual or, or actual uh, lived experience. And it what what happens is sometimes we we catch a train that feels really good and that gives us um you know short term a lot of short term benefits but then sometimes we tend to forget that we're actually holding these questions in our minds over the long term and you know I was just reading the uh, article in the New Yorker a couple issues ago from about Paul Haggis and uh, leaving Scientology after 35 years Right. You know, and just sort of how he said, I don't know how everybody else saw that. And I didn't. I was in a cult for 35 years. So it's really interesting to me, this question of how and under what conditions do we wake up? You know, I, I, I talk a lot about dreaming. So that's a really apt metaphor. Suddenly we realize, oh, my gosh, I've been in this dream. Right. And I, I actually started this whole quest with these fundamental questions, and I got a little bit of maybe something, but really the question is still right there front and center. That, to me, is a fascinating story, how it plays out over and over in different people. Right. And, and it, it's certainly interesting for me because a core sensibility about my own spiritual tradition, the Taiyu meditation tradition, is grounded in... Uh, a tradition of that's called the Fourth Way, which was uh, a kind of a Western synthesis mystical tradition that was introduced to the West by uh, a Russian mystic named G.I. Gurdjieff. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, Gurdjieff. And the core of that teaching, or one of the core metaphors of that teaching, is that what we take as our ordinary state of consciousness actually represents uh, a state of sleep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sometimes this is a very harrowing or austere message to say that uh, uh, humankind is asleep in its in its ordinary functioning and yeah. it promises or points to an awakened state which is the natural functioning of the human biological organism or as EJ Gold would call it the human biological machine mm-hmm. and the so 
the problem of sleep, recognizing sleep, even recognizing that we are asleep is one of the central or foundational uh, sets of questions and practices that uh, is at the root of, the, of, of this kind of tradition. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's a tough, tough question. I mean, I can say personally, even as a, someone who teaches this kind of practice and has been engaged in it for over 25 years, that there are layers upon layers of discovery about areas in, in, in which one has been asleep yeah. that one does not necessarily recognize. And the shading and coloring of the egoic consciousness and the assertion of the separated identity of I is a very subtle thing because mm-hmm. our egoic mechanism is something that gets imprinted on us fairly early in our lives, you know, from, you know just as we begin to learn language. And yet as a kind of program, it has a uh, survival function that uh, uh, it works to basically replicate itself or replicate the need for itself right. uh, as we move forward. We sometimes speak of the uh, ego, or, or in the Thai tradition, we call it the android. Uh-huh. It sort of uh, you know, looks like a human and acts like a human, but it's basically a machine. And the the way the android functions is it's, it's sort of like a problem engine. It creates problems. <laughs> and so the mind is constantly creating problems for us. And it has a vested, although it pretends to want to solve problems, it yeah. actually has a vested interest in uh, perpetuating problems. Because if it perpetuates problems, then its functionality is validated or justified. And so one of the core aspects of this this kind of training is to begin to redirect attention toward other parts of our organism mm-hmm. for instance bringing your attention into your body beginning to activate more thoroughly the sensing channels in the body which uh, opens up a whole different set of data and brings us much more squarely into the here and now than the flow of conceptualization and sort of feeling mixed with conceptualization that's offered up by the egoic structure <laughs> I, one of my favorite sayings when, when something changes or shifts and I'm, I you know, get to do something new is I always say, yep, on to a new set of problems. Right. <laughs> there's, there's the idea that oh, we're going we're gonna to overcome these problems and then everything will be great. But no, that's not true. We actually just get a different set to work with. You know, I mean, whether they're generated by how we're thinking about it or whether they are our actual you know, challenges and problems that, that are externally defined, right. uh, you know, it's, it's kind of, um, I don't know if it's a real optimistic viewpoint of the world, but it seems to have served me so far. Well, here's a good, uh, this sort of mystical, positive, a scientific experiment that everyone can do at home. This comes from, uh, my own, uh, primary teacher and the founder of Thai Meditation Center, Robert Innes, who mm-hmm. incidentally passed away in 1998. Oh. But he, he would uh, tell students to do an experiment. If there's an issue, you know, a problem they had or something like that, he would say, okay, check your feeling state. Just kind of t- take stock of how you feel now. Now spend 10 minutes thinking about your problem. And then check your feeling state. <laughs> yeah. So this is an experiment everyone can try. Uh, at, but when you conduct it in this way as an experiment, this, this sort of gets into this, uh, what I mean by sort of applying rationality to uh, uh, spiritual practice is that there, there are experiments you can perform, and no one has to tell you what the result is. If there's yeah. an objective truth here, you will find reliably an answer. Yeah. 
so people can obviously guess what the result of this experiment right. will be. But uh, you know, I invite people to try it for uh -huh. themselves and see. Okay, it, it demonstrates one thing: is like I can actually know some things about the functioning of my organism. I can possibly have a perspective where I can t do an experiment and note note the functioning of my flow of mental impressions, my flow of emotional impressions, and the sensations in my body. Yeah. And I can notice how those relate to each other, both internally and how they relate to each other in terms of uh, being activated by uh, events that are triggered from outside of myself. Mm -hmm. We are talking with Stuart Goodnick here on Dream Talk Radio. I'm your host, Ann Hill, and uh, Stuart is the host of The Mystical Positivist, Saturdays from 4 to 6 p.m. on COWS, which is a, a program of extended interviews with spiritual teachers. Um, and um, so I'm going to have to try and tune in on Saturdays to listen. Um, it got me curious, though. I mean, so you're a physicist by education, mm -hmm. and this is a real a kind of a hypothesize, verify, you know, observe, verify type of of um, map that you're that you're laying out about awareness and uh, becoming attuned to our own consciousness. How did you get into Taiyu meditation? What was the the bridge for you into this particular, um, you know, lens of for looking at, at at consciousness? Well, I was it when I was in graduate school. I did about two years there. Um, uh, as an undergraduate, I went to the California Institute of Technology, mm -hmm. which was this incredibly intense, uh, particularly for the undergraduate oh, experience, yeah. a very intense yes. scientific uh, 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 kind of the peak of the pyramid in terms yes. of science. Right. You know, it's like I, I, you know, personally met people like Richard Feynman, and right. you know, you'd see Nobel laureates, uh, you know, walking the campus, and and it's such a small community that you really are in touch with. Um, uh, the scientific elite yes. and have and have great access. Yeah. And the thing for me that was missing in that was uh, through this uh, through that experience as I kind of struggled as a student there uh, while discovering myself both socially and emotionally. I also had a d deep interest in sort of spiritual topics, occult topics, and I found very little affirmation of that line of thinking mm -hmm. in the um, uh, various offerings at Caltech. What a surprise. Yeah, uh, but I didn't know much else of what to do with myself, so sort of by momentum, I went, got into graduate school at UC Santa Cruz. Which, incidentally, I think you and I were there at the same time, although in vastly different programs. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I came in and like uh, I think I came in in '84. Yeah, that I was just getting my BA in the in late '84. Oh, great! <laughs> so, um, so basically, I, I came in then, and uh, the the nice thing about Santa, Santa Cruz is that they had this sort of uh, uh, narrative evaluation system, right. and. I had a nice gig as a uh, physics lab TA, so uh, I could get away with not doing much of anything for <laughs> a couple of years before uh, I, I kind of ran into the fact that I, I realized that uh, I didn't really want to be involved in academic physics. Yeah. But somewhere in the middle there, like after the first year, I was starting to you know, kind of get to a crisis point where I, there was a deep sense of emptiness in my life, and I articulated to myself 
and to the universe. I even wrote this in a journal that mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to find a spiritual teacher. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what that uh, would be for me. I didn't have, I, I thought things like Zen were very boring. Right. Uh, uh, I didn't, I really, at the time, you know, my relationship to spiritual topics was probably more of a flavor of the occult. And mm -hmm. my relationship to the occult was very much like my relationship to physics. I was looking for the uber model that would uh -huh. explain everything. Right. And, of course, physics as a kind of a form of applied magic, you know, promises yes. great power in the sense of uh, control. And it appeals to a psychology that's feeling kind of out of control in one's mm -hmm. life. So for me, that was kind of where my head was at. But I cast this net out. Um, I think at the time uh, I, I found I went through common ground and found mm -hmm. a few different things that were of interest. Uh, one of them was uh, uh, Taiyu Meditation Center. And... Um, uh, it, it was under a, a different name then and had a different focus. At, at the time that I connected with them, uh, the focus was uh, doing a kind of a special outreach to uh, uh, gay people. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and uh, I, I'm gay, and the, the, that, the, I was also lonely. Yeah. <laughs> because, and, and, you know, didn't have a lot of social skills of, like, putting myself in this sort of situations where I might meet people. Right. So I thought, oh, here, here's an idea. I might, I might actually... Uh, <laughs> So, so they were they were like hosting these workshops with people that had nothing to do with their tradition, but it was sort of mm -hmm. under the auspices of gay spirituality, mm -hmm. which uh, our founder Robert Ennis at the time was trying to explore before uh, Taiyu opened up to be a, just a, a general uh, mm -hmm. teaching vehicle for anybody of any background. And so I, I went to a workshop and. Um, I didn't expect anything. I actually went to the workshop thinking I was going to uh, maybe meet some people, you know, like for sure, of relationship purposes. Which Why else a, go to a church of any sort? Yeah, as a footnote, <laughs> a lot of people go into spiritual communities uh, looking for relationships. But, yeah. but I, I, uh, circumstances arranged themselves to where uh, I, the Robert Ennis, and I ended up having a conversation, and it was sort of funny how this happened because no, I didn't see any intentional happening. There were mm -hmm. a bunch of people at this workshop, but at one point, Robert and I are alone in the living room, and we start having a conversation about my interest in spiritual matters. Robert described that Taiyu was actually a, a functioning spiritual school and community, mm -hmm. and that uh, you know that as a teacher, uh, he can work with students, and he also described what Taiyu did as sort of a, as a fourth way kind of community. Yeah. And for me, I was familiar with about the only spiritual text that I would call, you know, true spiritual that I, that had any sort of uh, resonance with me was reading some of the Gurdjieff material. Yeah. I think I, I think I had read on the advice of a friend, Meetings with Remarkable Men, mm -hmm. where you get the kind of hearty voice of Gurdjieff speaking mm -hmm. and you get the voice of someone who seems to have a very different and robust approach to questions of one's existence. Sure. So when Robert Ennis said this to me, I was, I was kind of galvanized. It's like, because I knew in that moment, I literally knew that this was what I asked for. I asked for a mm -hmm. teacher. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is actually an interesting point from the, again, of the perspective of the mystical positive. Yeah. You can mm -hmm. ask for things from the universe and you have to be very clear that when it's given to you, that you don't like throw it back. Right. Right. Um, That's right. And, and I, I, remember having that moment of, uh, you know, well, this isn't like what I, th what right. I thought, or this isn't like the teaching <laughs> context I thought. I, I don't even know if I like this person or anything yeah. like that. But I knew that, oh, this, this is, 
the universe is telling me this is what you do. This is what I asked for. Yeah, this yeah. exactly. And right. so, so I I went to a, like a, another workshop a, a couple months later. Uh, they uh, had a study group going in Berkeley that I started to attend. So I drive up once a week from Santa Cruz to Berkeley, and after I probably close to a um, you know maybe nine months of doing this or so I, I decided that you know as, as my career in, uh, as a physics grad student was drawing to an end I kind of realized I need to like move into this community and yeah. so that brought me up into Sonoma County oh, and okay. from there I, I you know basically moved into a spiritual school and um, began to work with the practices but also deepen a relationship with uh, my teachers there mm-hmm. um, and that in itself, you know, is a you know that that's a different story of what that entails. But that's mm. how this is how I kind of got into this world, and then yeah. all of the the you know because I had a, a nice scientific degree and things like that. Um, eventually, I was able to when I needed to make some money get a reasonable job in the mm-hmm. tech in- industry in Sonoma County. So then, so when in this, let's see, I'm trying to remember when Many Rivers books started up. Wasn't that in the late 90s or mid, mid-90s? mid It seems like forever, but it <laughs> actually got started in uh, uh, 2002. We, Gosh. We, we opened uh, on Black, uh, was it Black Friday or whatever the day after Thanksgiving mm. is, you know. Yeah, the, the, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, we, that was our target for opening. And so yeah, right. we opened uh, then in uh, 2002. It was a project that uh, our our director uh, Robert Schmidt, who also joins me on the, the Mystical Positive mm-hmm. show, uh, we we knew that this is something that Robert Ennis would have loved. Unfortunately, he didn't leave, yeah. live to see the uh, uh, creation of Many Rivers. But it's the kind of project that was very much in his spirit of mm-hmm. how he liked to bring people together. But uh, this to give you a good sense of uh, fourth way uh, practice and and you know one of the aspects of this kind of tradition is a, an emphasis on practical work. Uh-huh. So there's often a, a, a attention given to work projects. Mm-hmm. So many rivers started out as a work project for us, and hmm. uh, we had the idea in the summer of doing something like this. I think Rob and I had gone down to Santa Cruz where I was doing a performance uh, in a Japanese music group I participate mm-hmm. in. And we saw the East-West bookstore down there. Oh, and, yeah, great bookstore. Yeah, and uh, I'd known known that bookstore when I was a student in Santa Cruz, and it was nice to see it. They'd moved to a new location. Mm-hmm. But what I hadn't connected before was that they're, they're a project of the 3HO Foundation. Oh, okay. And so I thought, oh, spiritual bookstore. I thought, we can do that. Oh. And uh, uh, I also had a, an abiding interest in tea, uh, so at some point in the uh, evolution of this idea, we thought, well, we should do books and tea. Yeah. And then we, uh, Rob and I, worked with our friend Jim Wilson, who's um, uh, who's been a you know was a Buddhist practitioner for many yeah. years. Now he's actually deeply immersed in the Quaker tradition. Uh-huh. But he worked in bookstores, so he had this uh, pub- uh-huh. this kind of practical knowledge yeah. about how to run a bookstore. Yeah. So. We thought, hey, uh, this sounds like a neat idea. Let's do this in Sonoma County. And we found a spot, or it found us, literally, in Sebastopol. And so we signed a lease. Rob and I took a week's vacation with my family. Uh, That's a yearly thing we do. Mm -hmm. 
And then we came back, and then five, I think five weeks later, we opened the store. Oh, my gosh. That's so, so there was this <laughs> vortex of energy around the birth of this enterprise. Uh, everything that could go right went right. Wow. In other, in other words, we didn't, yeah. you know, we, we were able to organize, get books in, get tea in, get shelves in, do remodeling that we needed to do. Uh, all in this uh, sort of hyperventilated time yes, frame. Right. It's not that we haven't subsequently right. changed and added and things like sure. that, but basically we were able to open our doors and do a good bit of business um, on our target date, which is we'd never done this before, so it seemed like, yeah, that's what you, you know, you've got a deadline, you've got to work sure. towards it. Uh, although I n now notice on our block that any new store that comes in usually takes several months. <laughs> to get started, yeah. <laughs> so so that that was the birth of Many Rivers, and and Many Rivers was really intended to be a vehicle for the community uh -huh. to keep alive the notion that genuine spiritual practice is real and available. Mm -hmm. And our motto is that we provide tools for spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a wonderful resource. I mean, uh, and the the just the the feat of being open from 2002 till now what is it 2011 in the worst economic climate ever particularly for independent bookstores in a town that already has an independent bookstore i mean that is you know yeah. you you need a little merit badge on your on your boy scout sash or something for that yeah we we we've been very lucky and yeah. you know one of the benefits of you know a project like this is since it's part of a nonprofit organization we uh -huh. don't we're not really driving profit out of it right. or it's, you know we're we're, we're uh, so it's so there are challenges maintaining a right. store like that and uh, it does uh, uh, benefit from uh, some generous uh, donations that come mm -hmm. our way but mm -hmm. but the uh, but it, it does it does uh, uh, pretty good business, you know, in order yeah. to allow us to keep it uh, running. And, and as, as you say, it's been a challenging economic time. Oh, man. The nice thing for us is that spiritual books tend to be things that people want to buy and hold on to. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not quite in the same category as, uh, you know, the latest novel that yeah. uh, becomes more and more attractive to read on your uh, iPad. That's right. And the other thing that the, the other part of the business that's very strong for us is the tea business. Mm -hmm. So so we you know have a wonderful collection of loose leaf teas. We have uh, tea ware, and we evangelize uh, on a regular basis uh, <laughs> the drinking of fine tea and do tea tastings once a month. And that 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 brings a different kind of clientele in. Yeah. And and I think we've established a relationship with our customers and a reputation for having a kind of deep perspective on tea, but also, you know, having a kind of, a, uh, you know, not being really fussy and uh, overly uh, yeah. uh, 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 precious about drinking fine tea. Right. You know, it's, it's like in China, they may use all this fancy teaware, but when you see it done in action, you know, it's, it's very ordinary. Yes. And so right. our, our intention is to make drinking fine tea uh, ordinary for people. Well, you know, that's one thing you should add to your show. You should always, every show here on Cows, you should have a little pot of tea. And, and today we're drinking, you know, X tea, and it's got this and this, and you can have a whole conversation. And that's, that's it, true. That's a good idea, actually. That's a, uh, now that we've moved to a, a two-hour 
hour segment. Yeah. I, I, I have to think of ways to uh, fill the time. Well, because, you know, I, I go in there and I'm just overwhelmed. There's so many different kinds of teas. And I, I know that I like, you know, black currant tea. <laughs> That's my thing. So, but to have somebody describing it and the aroma and the taste yeah. and stuff, that would actually be, I would be, you know, I would I would take notes. Yeah, but I, I'll also just to draw this uh, uh, thread back to our earlier conversation yeah. about mystical positivism. It's uh, an interesting thing that I found that uh, you can describe the taste of tea to people, but yeah. uh, that's never a substitute for someone tasting the tea themselves. Well, absolutely. And it, uh, it, I think of that in terms of descriptions about uh, spiritual states and, and uh the way that people often approach descriptions of mystical tradition. Mm-hmm. That, uh, there are lots of descriptions out there, and sometimes we uh, substitute the description for the our own direct experience. That's right. And so it's, uh, it's always important to taste the tea. Absolutely. Well, yeah, you just let the description drive your own curiosity. Right, exactly. It's a teaser, if you will. Right. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> We're talking to Stuart Goodnick here on Dream Talk Radio. You're listening to Cows Radio, and uh, Stuart is the host of the Mystical Positivist Show here on Cows every Saturday from four to six. He is a founder of Many Rivers Books and Tea and a Taiyu meditation practitioner. One of the things, uh, Stuart, that I wanted to touch on in this hour is uh, you you mentioned okay so you work in silicon valley um now how does this do you bring your meditation practice or teaching into your work uh, in the tech industry i do it in the sense that as an embodiment of a teaching i have the opportunity to put into practice what i learn in the community space or in the Mm -hmm. sangha space in the uh, outside world, yeah. <clears throat> and I don't even, you know, even using a term like outside world uh, gives a sense of boundary that I don't think I experience in the same way. I mean, it's not like I have a inside-outside view. It's, it's more like the context of the work environment is a place and a cha- it's a challenging place to put into practice spiritual ideas or spiritual principles mm-hmm. without having the explicit context of a spiritual community. Yeah. And so there's a challenge in that it's easier to forget to do that uh, because the context isn't, you know, kind of vibrating in your face, not giving you any option but mm-hmm. to do that. But it's also an opportunity to look at one's own work and to observe other people in their functioning yeah. and to begin to get a more nuanced view of what spiritual practice represents for oneself and also to uh, gather data on the functioning of other organisms who mm-hmm. aren't necessarily involved in uh, uh, directly in a spiritual community. Mm-hmm. And I don't have, you know, that one of the, sometimes the danger of being involved in a community and the danger of being involved in a practice is that you can develop a sense of superiority or, you know, I'm doing this, therefore I am better than, uh, you know, I'm more awake than uh, other people around me. And I find that I have found like working in the uh, business world is refreshing in that I don't really have a lot of uh, opportunity for that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you're, you're, no one cares that that, that you meditate. (laughs) uh, it's, It's like whether you can get the job done. 
Now, yeah. Let me give you an example, though, of a way that our particular, one of the unique things about Taiyu practice, and this was an innovation that Robert Ennis really emphasized that goes beyond the traditional sort of fourth-way views of things like self-observation. Robert had a uh, emphasized a practice called Mm co-meditation, and it's a practice, we do workshops on it on a regular basis, and we we give talks about it, and it's, it's at its simplest, at its root core, um, it it can be practiced by two people sitting in a meditative posture, yeah. face-to-face, maintaining eye contact for the extent of the meditation. But there are other forms of it in which one, people begin to do various kinds of uh, expressions and um, uh, observe in others the uh, emotional manifestations and mental manifestations and, and etc., Mm-hmm. And so I've had a lot of practice maintaining eye contact with people, being present with other people, mm-hmm. lots of different other people over the years in in the in this practice, both in you know workshops and uh, just with people in general. And so there's a deep sense in our practice about engaging with full attention with someone else, mm-hmm. being able to meet someone else in a place of uh, uh, non-reactivity being able to acknowledge, and this is another part of co-meditation that's a mm-hmm. critical component, the acknowledge when someone expresses something to you, you acknowledge it before moving on with your thing. And mm-hmm. all of these, as a body of practices, change the way that we relate to each other, whether it's in the grocery uh, store line, at the cash register, in our professional context, yeah. with our families, if our family members aren't practitioners of uh, this kind of work. And so I notice that the business context is a great place for putting that into practice and also observing habit patterns in oneself where mm-hmm. one strays from that. You know, for instance, you know, a bad habit that I think affects many of us, I, I certainly have uh, struggled with it myself, is, you know, in a business context, being on the phone and looking at your computer at the same time, reading email, you know, not putting attention. Wait, on, uh, wait you mean that means I'm not paying attention to the person <laughs> I'm on the phone with? Exactly. You know, Newsflash. We, we like to call that uh, multitasking. Um, <laughs> I remember in a workshop uh, a few years ago that uh, E.J. Gold was giving, uh, who is, again, my teacher's teacher and uh, still practices and teaches up in Grass Valley, he he kind of epitomized this uh, with the analogy, I only keep one window open at a time on my desktop. Wow. And uh, that that says it. So, so the work context <laughs> for me has always been uh, this exterior laboratory yeah. for putting into uh, practical uh, work my, right. my own spiritual practice. And so I don't see a separation. Uh-huh. There's, it's, it's not like, you know, I'm inside and outside it's like the, sure. the, if i have the ambition or if i have the uh, inspiration to deepen my mystical awareness or my spiritual integrity mm-hmm. the universe will necessarily respond with situations that provide me with the challenges i need yes. to grow in that moment and the work environment the uh, uh, is a just a wonderful engine for that kind of uh, uh, transformation well, and I think that's that's sort of a, a, a the crucible where 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 you can see if any spiritual tradition that you're engaged with 
is really worth the time and effort you're putting into it? Does it help you in these day-to-day interactions in a very concrete way? Does it help you live your life, you know, lead a good life? I think that that's really, for me, that's a real litmus test. So I guess my curiosity is, do you find much openness? Now, you work in not only in tech, but also in sort of in security systems and things, which is, uh, you know, it's a pretty buttoned down. It's not it's not like some wild social networky thing. So do you find a receptivity amongst your coworkers or your uh, colleagues down there for this type of awareness practice? Uh, I would say not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, it's not to say that... Uh, there's antagonism, uh, uh, but I find in general that there is limited receptivity in uh, most of the world towards what I would call deep spiritual inquiry. Yeah. There, there is lip service paid, and sometimes people are religious, or sometimes people enjoy the ideas, and and um, you see, you know, out of you know if you. There are some people who, like, out of 100% of their attention and time might, you know, give 10% of, you know, thought about spiritual matters. But most people are just, you know, getting by day to day, doing what yeah. they need to do with their family, their work, uh, their, their, their friends, and, and, uh, and the things that kind of entertain them or that they like to do, some of which are very constructive activities. Yeah. But I don't find it common to find people that are seriously interested in uh, a lifelong commitment in deep uh-huh. spiritual practice. And I don't think I don't see that as a problem. I don't I don't yeah. feel like I have to evangelize. Right. I take a kind of the fourth way attitude that uh, not everyone in this particular life is needs to engage in what I would call kind of deep, you know, dedicated spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. It, um, it represents something that is available for people who have that burning right. need, but it also is a demanding commitment. Yes. Uh, if one does it uh, seriously. However, that said, I do find these these interesting moments. Uh, one that happened to me recently was a uh, someone who actually moved into the group. I, I manage a, a, a group uh, in, at the company I work for, mm-hmm. and someone moved into that group from another department. So, kind of, it's my first hire of, of a relatively new position, mm-hmm. and. And, you know, this is just a random sort of uh, occurrence. You know, yeah. I had no explicit control or I didn't try to make anything happen. But not too long ago, uh, I got into a conversation about how we handled my father's death mm-hmm. and also the way we handled the death of uh, our, our teacher, Robert Ennis. Yeah. And the part of did, I, I won't go into that long story, mm-hmm. but part, kind of the core of that was that we were active participators being present, keeping the body for three days, yeah. taking the body ourselves to the crematorium, participating in the cremation, yeah. uh, uh, handling the bones after they had cooled when they were taken out of the oven. You know, the, uh, the, all of this very gritty, right. you know, full-bodied confrontation with mm-hmm. the experience of this death. And so this topic sort of strangely came up with this guy, and he, you know, it's like his jaw dropped and his mm-hmm. eyes opened, and he related to me how he, his family, you know, like he and his sister in particular, had dealt with the death of their father in the same way. Yeah. And in 12 years since that event for them, he had never and she had never met anyone who could possibly even relate to uh, how they handled that death. Mm-hmm. For them, it was their special secret. Yeah. 
And here I was describing not only much of what they did, but actually kind of going over and above what they <laughs> what they had specifically done. And I hadn't done it once. I, uh, you know, I right. uh, participated, particularly uh, Rob Schmidt and myself, had uh, participated in this twice. And I even had like a, uh, an article I'd written about it, and I sent it to him. And it, it's it's like there was this magical sort of recognition that all of a sudden here were two people who could share this intense, intense intimacy yeah. that uh, wasn't, you know, a moment ago didn't exist in the context. Mm-hmm. So, so there are times like that. There are other moments where I find where, you know, the, the planets line up and all of a sudden I can get in yeah. to uh, this very deep, intimate spiritual space with someone. And then the planets misalign and we're back to sort of a more superficial relationship. Right. But we both recognize the power of that moment. Sure. So moments like that happen, and I and I find that special. I feel I feel like then you know I'm sort of allowing myself to do what uh, I think any spiritual practitioner ultimately right. has the desire to achieve, which is to become an instrument of the movement of the divine yeah. without having to have our egos uh, right. uh, set our agenda. Yeah. Well, it builds trust, and you know, in the. In, in the end, somebody who trusts you more because based on, on how you handled, you know, a major passage like death means that they, they actually have permission to trust themselves more, which is really, to me, the whole reason to, to talk about what we do as individual spiritual practitioners and right. help other people get in touch with that themselves. So, so sounds good. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you before we go, and I should also mention that uh, you're listening to Dream Talk Radio here on Cows. I'm Ann Hill, your host every Thursday, 9 to 10. And, and this morning, my guest has been Stuart Goodnick, who is host here on Cows of the Mystical Positivist, Saturday from 4 to 6 on Cows. And uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you was, who are you going to have? Do you want to uh, plug some upcoming shows? And sure. in general, kind of what's what's next? What do you have in the in the hopper for so, so the spring? As a- as a new show, uh, my hopper is uh, <laughs> relatively uh, lean. Uh, uh, so uh, I, we have the next two weeks, uh, uh, the next two shows sort of uh, uh, booked, so I can tell you about those. Oh, great. Uh, and then uh, uh, if, if you have any ideas for me, I'm, all, I'm open to it. But uh, uh, next week we have, uh, or I should say this Saturday, we have Patricia Elizabeth, who's mm-hmm. an expert in the field of death and dying. Oh, great. So she's someone who's she's worked with Elizabeth Kupler Ross, mm-hmm. and she's a longtime student of E.J. Gold, and um, uh, has she's been recognized uh, uh, worldwide for her skill in guiding voyagers who are dying and mm-hmm. who are traumatized and in critical transitions. So she does this work. She kind of has taken the, the work that was started by E.J. Gold around a, a work he wrote many years ago called the American Book of the Dead, which yeah. is kind of a takeoff on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Mm-hmm. But it forms a practice which uh, she's going to elaborate on, and we incorporate elements of that in our own tradition of when someone passes to do readings for them for 49 days. Jeez. And it's uh, there's an interesting it's interesting material. I think she yeah. she I've seen she's spoken years ago at Many Rivers. She has mm-hmm. a great presence about her. And then uh, on March 5th we have uh, Miosho Virginia Matthews. Oh, Jenny Matthews. Yeah, so you yeah. know Jenny, right? Sure. Yeah, so she she's going to be our guest, and uh, of course she's a uh, uh, been a 
you know, 37-year yeah. student of uh, uh, Sasaki Roshi mm-hmm. and the Rinzai Zen tradition, and uh, also is a, a, a dance uh, choreographer and teacher. So, uh, she she she's a great guest. It'll be interesting to. Uh, she's spoken at Many Rivers many times. We've known her for years. Yeah. So she'll be a great guest. That'll on the show. be a good show. So now, what is the format of your show? Two hours. That's 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 quite a bit of time yeah. there. Yeah, you know, it's funny because uh, we started life as a one-hour show, and uh, I think, as you can tell, the one hour is very comfortable and goes by very quickly. But the uh, programming board, when they gave us the slot, said, we thought you'd want two hours. And at first Mm -hmm. I said, no, no, no. And then I thought, okay, well, we we have a... Uh, expression in our own practice, which is follow your dread. So go towards <laughs> that which is least comfortable. Oh, so, I hate that expression. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a live wire. So maybe some other time we can talk about that. You but, bet. Uh, uh, so we decided to give a try for a two-hour format. What we found was that often with interviews that, um, you know, it, we wanted to do longer than 45 minutes mm-hmm. and uh, wanted to have opportunity for some segments. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I, I fill some of the time with uh, some music, fill some of the time with uh, our own segments where we might do readings or talk about oh, topics nice. where Rob and I will uh, do some extent, extemporaneous stuff. And then the bulk, the anchor of the show is the interview, which usually mm-hmm. goes for uh, an hour to hour and 15 minutes. Yeah, that sounds just about right. Yeah. Well, very good. And, you know, best of luck to you. I think it's great to have shows like this, especially on such an amazing local resource as a local FM station, Cal. Well, I, so. I appreciate that. And I'll say very quickly that uh, uh, for those of you who are interested in past shows we've done, oh, uh, we, ha- we archive the shows at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com. Okay, mysticalpositivist.blogspot. Dot com and yeah, so you and can you, you can you archive can your the, shows there huh yeah so uh, you, you and you get to that from uh, you, if you go to the cows station and find uh, there's a link on that under yeah. the programmers list great uh, so if people want to get in touch with you how shall they go about doing such a thing um, I think they, they can either go to that website okay. uh, uh, or um, uh, you know my general email is uh, uh, available too which is just uh, sgoodnick at gmail.com okay very good well Stuart thank you so much for uh, being here on the air with me this morning it's been really fun to get to know you a little bit more and, and hear about your show and your practice and everything else well great I appreciate it it's been a nice diversion from uh, the <laughs> world of high tech security <laughs> I live to serve <laughs> indeed <laughs> alright take care alright bye 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 That ends this week's Dream Talk radio show podcast. Thanks for listening, and remember to tune in every Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. at www.kows.fm. This is Ann Hill, and I'll see you again next week.